for a long time now, the world has been talking about and focused on cultural appropriation. As writers and creators and being notoriously lazy, it's been a real kick in the teeth. Or has it? How do you avoid cultural appropriation, and does it really matter? What about inclusive language? Why would you need to be inclusive if you're making shit for fun and don't want to deal with all this political correctness bullshit? This episode on Why Aren't You Talking About This, Nerd. Hello everyone and welcome to Waytat Nerd. I am your host William and I'll be your guide through the world of writing and some terrible, terrible history today. Whether you're listening from your car, home, in public like a dickhead, or being subjected to this as some form of torture, it means the world that you're listening. Uh, blink twice if you need help. And this week, on top of telling you to download the show, I am now able to track stream data, which means regardless of if you download like a good boy or stream like a naughty boy, I can track it now. And I know where you live. Check your front door. But anyways, that's all I have for the intro today. So let's get on to the show. All right. So we're talking about how to be inclusive in your writing, what cultural appropriation is, and how to avoid it or fix it in your own writing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Don't turn this off yet. Now, I'm sure you've heard about cultural appropriation, or either offended that I just said that you are doing it, or are offended I imply it's a real thing. And let me assure you, yes, it's real, and yes, you probably are. But it's, it's okay. If you weren't on the lookout for this stuff, you probably wouldn't catch it. Now, what is cultural appropriation appropriative writing? Basically, this is stealing another culture's traits, beliefs, rituals, or religion, and scratching off its serial numbers and plopping it into your writing. Now, this also includes stealing the identity of another culture, especially a minority culture, or stealing the art form or art pieces of a minority artist or the whole culture. All of this is some form of artistic appropriation. Now, if you find yourself sweating because you're realizing that the Native American culture insert in that fantasy book you're writing is culturally appropriating, you're probably right, and it's okay as long as you fix that. But where does all this come from? Well, simply put, it's rarely, if ever, a malicious thing. Most of the time when someone appropriates, they just think the thing is cool or they spend a lot of time interacting with that culture. And so usually what happens is that you're writing and think, huh, I need a group of people here. 
And I remember that one time that you saw a Native American performer and decided, oh, hell yeah, I'll use that. They're awesome. And you do that without really thinking about it. And that can really flatten that culture, and you aren't really getting the necessary context to know why whatever cultural traits you're taking are there, which robs them of their significance, and if you're part of a majority culture doing this to minority culture, it can contribute to erasing it entirely. And this isn't me trying to shame you, as much as you deserve it, you son of a bitch. Instead, this is me saying that it's very easy to do while you're trying to celebrate or show your love for something. Because the line between appropriation and appreciation is very thin, especially if you're part of a majority culture. I mean, really, the important thing to remember is to wear your influences on your sleeves, give them full credit, accept corrections, and double down on inclusivity. But we'll get back to all that during the application section. For now, let's ask what inclusive writing is. Inclusive writing describes writing with two separate but related ideas. The first is any writing with a dual goal of promoting the inclusion of and diversity in gender, sex, sexual orientation, race, religion, and or nationality in your writing, and also working to entirely eliminate all forms of discrimination through the slow process of writing Kumbaya until it goes away. Now, I poke fun at it a bit because it seems ridiculous on the surface, but as we've talked about on the show before, writing has a ton of power, meaning that you very well could change someone's mind by just writing in a more inclusive way without them even knowing. And if you're suddenly paranoid that you're getting Winter Soldiered or MK Ultra into becoming a pussy-eating liberal, don't be stupid. It's already happened. Look around your bedroom. See that anime poster? Made by a no-good, filthy liberal. The thigh highs you're wearing? Ever wonder why you started wearing them? Anyways, this version of inclusive writing is the more ambitious version and sees the purpose of inclusivity to be slowly over time fixing all the ways that we're really fucked up about people even a quarter of a hair's width different from us. Now, the other version of inclusive writing is a form of writing intended to invite people of specific demographics into your writing and to enjoy the story. And how does it do this? Well, by respecting their backgrounds, abilities, culture, and their demographic as a whole. While this usually means all of that very, very woke stuff from above, this also includes just generally being more inclusive. So, for example, if you're writing a story that has a whole lot of forestry and wildcrafting, if you take the time to, you know, actually talk about that, then the people who are into that feel a lot more invited than if you just hand-waved it away. And the funny thing is that a lot of people assume that all inclusivity is woke liberal bullshit, and so they'll assume that when you say this writing is inclusive, that what you really mean is, hey, have you ever considered what if this character had a girl cop? And what you're really trying to tell them is, hey, this shit sucks. Now, unlike appropriative writing, inclusive writing rarely happens by accident. And your intention going into it really determines what kind of inclusive writing it is. For example, if you're writing a book trying to promote real-world inclusivity of queer people and make the cast oops all gays, then you're being inclusive in the first form, and also giving the shippers so much to work with that they might become even more of a basement goblin than they already are. And you're also probably going to get conservative Twitter really mad and start burning your book, so it 
doesn't turn them gay. Oh, if you do that, by the way, look down. See those thigh highs? It's already too late. But if you're, for example, trying to appeal to a queer audience with your writing because they seem like a market you want to tap into, or you just really love how they act as a fandom, then you're doing the second form. Because you're marketing your writing as being understanding of the queer experience and also openly supporting it. And assumedly, you're right about what it's like and not just making shit up and being like, ah, yes, all queers eat rainbow skittles and M&Ms because they instinctively have to eat rainbows to maintain their gay meter. Because that isn't happening. Oh, but, um, unrelated, can any queer people listening reach out? I'm having a hard time with something unrelated but that's really all for this section so let's move on to the history so before we begin the history section this week i need to thank the person that's basically solely responsible for the section being here See, usually I'm able to find a few different versions of a timeline or essays or articles on the history of a thing and make my own timeline for it based on those. But this week I could not find one and almost entirely gave up on it until I found the article aptly titled Cultural Appropriation written by Mahika Barua. I really should have looked up how to pronounce that. I'm very sorry. Um, hosted on CQ Researcher. So I want to thank Mahika Bahura for the actual informative parts of this timeline. Now, this is also a history of cultural appropriation, not necessarily writing specifically, but it should give you a good idea. Alright, getting started, we begin in 1843, when anthropologist Gustav Frederick Klem, one guess is where he's from, publishes General Cultural History of Mankind. Uh, Germany, by the way. But this is the first time that culture was used to refer to a collection of people rather than, you know, stupid shit like art. And then in 1852, we have the first example of a piece of art getting shit for both being inclusive liberal bullshit and also being really non-inclusive. That is Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And... Initially, upon release, this book was fucking annihilated by white critics for being anywhere near positive towards black people and having the gall to make anyone not white seem to be good in any way. And later on, this book would then be canned by the black community for being incredibly stereotypical and still racist as fuck. I can't win, huh? Well... But, to be fair, the definition of inclusive back then included the adventures of Huck Finn, which has so many N-words it would make the clan blush. But, now we move on to 1871, when anthropologist Edward Burnett Tidelor released his paper, Primitive Culture, which defines culture as a collection of socialized ideals and institutions. And this changes the game, since this allows for cultural anthropology to become a field of its own and make studying it the new hotness. Also, can't forget the title of that paper, because at this time in history, primitive didn't mean old. It meant non-European and also not respected. It should also be noted that while at this time cultural appropriation wasn't a term yet, it was absolutely fucking happening. 
With the mid and late 19th century came a level of worldwide commerce and Western interest in foreign things they really haven't seen since. Being that high and mighty, self-superior Western Europeans were gathering artifacts and ideas from foreign lands with total disregard for their meanings or significance just because they look cool or like the vague idea of things like karma, Egyptian gods, the Chinese elements, and all of those sweet, sweet drugs. This pretty quickly wore off, however, as Western Europe remembered that one of its perks it picked from the last civilization round was competitive racism, and began to be exceptionally racist, especially in its artistic performances in film. In the U.S. especially, the early 20th century was THE century of blackface. If you don't know what it is, it's a trope used in the Jim Crow era to make fun of black people by painting their skin pitch black, their lips red and often exaggerated size, and wearing dirty, tattered clothes and acting like an idiot. Yep. And that's why it's still such a big deal now. Because on top of the injury of the transatlantic slave trade, the horrors of slavery, and now the horrors of segregation, was the insult of blackface. In fact, in 1915, Woodrow Wilson's favorite movie came out, Birth of a Nation. Yes, no joke, a fucking president loved this goddamn movie. Now, this movie basically depicts the Union Army during the Civil War, but with a large number of black-faced-up actors acting like fucking monsters, and the whole point of the movie is that the KKK saves the day. What the fuck? And to make matters more, uh, racist, in 1927 we have another example of incredibly popular blackface, the movie The Jazz Singer. This movie is the first one believed to have killed the silent movie era with its use of musical scores and synchronized dialogue and is the 90th best American film of all time and is preserved as a cultural artifact. But, the main character, Jackie Rabinowitz, goes by Jack Robin, a jazz singer in blackface. Yikes. And this happens again 11 years later with the movie Babes in Arms, in which both Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney wear blackface. While not as significant as the jazz singer critically, this was still a beloved and popular movie at the time. But now we're going to shift more modern. And don't get it twisted, it's not like appropriation like that stopped after 1938. Blackface continued to be popular until the late 40s, and even then, it didn't stop and continues to this day. Although the extremity of it, seen up to the 1930s and 40s, hasn't really been copied. But other ethnic makeups have been, especially yellowface and redface, making fun of Asians and Native Americans. In fact, many of these became popular around the same time, and while called out to this day, tend to get away with being much more extreme than blackface. But in 1973, we have an example of redface, and if I'm being honest, probably just some straight-up racism. Now, Cher released a song by a half-Cherokee woman, and in the music video, Cher is wearing a Native American headdress and other Native American clothes. And the music video overall contains a lot of different, also conflicting, Native American stereotypes, including that headdress being from a Plains culture, her top modeled after ones from the Northwest and Plains, and a loincloth, none of which were ever worn by the Cherokee. 
and also there were Pacific Northwest totem poles, so really just all around not doing a good job. And this is despite the message of the song meaning to be against racism, again, showing that it's possibly racist while trying to do a good thing. In 1976, we gained the first inklings of cultural appropriation. Art historian Kenneth Coates Smith writes some general observations on the concept of cultural colonization, in which he coins the phrase class appropriation when you try to act like a lower class or clout with them, and also cultural colonialism when you force everyone else to act like you by incepting your culture into their brains. See, we're very close. Added onto this, sociologist Dick Hebdige, grow up you fucking child, you can name your kid Dick, writes subculture, the meaning of style, in 1979. In this, he examined what British people mean when they say style, and given that they're crayon-munching, world-conquering, we learned it from watching you, daddy, influences on the U.S., doesn't take too long to figure out when someone else has already done the work for you and you just connect the dots that are already connected. Uh, thanks for doing the work for me, Dick. But the meaning of style to the British means you can inflate a particular symbol with a cultural group, and over time that symbol eventually becomes a marketable plushie that you can then wear on the open without being an appropriating asshole to your other white friends. Which you know, kind of robs them of their cultural significance, like how the British Museum rips artifacts from the dying hands of a millennia old culture they just killed. And it sounds complicated, let's look at an example. So, say, the Black Fist, a common symbol for black American activism, just shipped over the aisles. Now, if this happened to that symbol, it would become associated with black activism, and then we go from activism for black people to black activist style, meaning you can wear it just because you think it's a cool symbol. Now, and then in 1980, we see Western sociologists, cultural anthropologists, and other smart fucking nerds that make me so horny I'm mad about it, begin to use the term cultural appropriation for the first time to refer to Western colonialism. And in this case, it was in reference to the process of stripping meaning away from another culture and colonizing them. So basically, you incept your culture into theirs while simultaneously taking the parts of their culture you like and reframing it how you want to reframe it, stripping the original meaning from it, and forcing them to adapt to your culture in order to have any culture at all. Yikes. Okay, and now we get to the semi-modern day with 1998, which is still a while ago. And in 1998, the new hotness worldwide was Bindi and henna tattoos. And is this because a lot of people suddenly became Hindu and wanted to demonstrate their connection to their Ajna or have a lot of special occasions they're celebrating and are wishing for good health and prosperity? No, it's because artists like Madonna and Gwen Stefani wore them and people decide, oh, this millennial old tradition with a lot of spiritual significance with sacred beatings that are often seen as offensive to wear without reason or without being a practitioner? Hell yeah, I'll wear that to the county fair. And in 2004, Gwen Stefani gets in hot shit for using Harajuku girls as backup dancers in a music video. If you aren't familiar, Harajuku 
is a Japanese fashion district that has become well-known for being quirky, weird, and extremely colorful and bright. And the Harajuku girls are people who dress up in those styles. And, you know, obviously, while not really being sacred, Gwen Stefani got into shit because a lot of people took it as a minstrel show being like, huh, look at those Japanese people. Quirky Asians. And, you know, while obviously this controversy should have gone away very quickly, especially because some of the dancers have come out and said it was awesome and no one else was offended, Gwen Stefani is doubled down, which has only made the cultural appropriation allegations stronger. Now, if you thought that was like some Twitter-era horseshit, get ready for the post-2010s, because as social media takes off, cultural appropriation becomes part of the general lexicon. And as expected for something that's so difficult to pin down and to really prove someone is doing while also being an asshole, it means it begins to get thrown around a lot. And here's the thing. In most cases, I'd say it's actually a good thing, and we'll see those. In some cases, it was overzealous, but for the most part, it hasn't been the fucking nightmare scenario people think it is. It's also not as big of a condemnation as people think it is. And speaking of examples, we have the fashion company Rodarte. I, I'm not even going to try. I apologize. Which apologized publicly for the clothing line it introduced, which took inspiration from the uniforms of female factory workers in motherfucking Juarez, Mexico. Now, the reason why this is Yikaruni Scooby-Doo is because female factory workers in Juarez deal with a ton of fucked up shit, especially violence and being trafficked, on top of being abused by the factories. And so a lot of people called out this fashion line because, holy shit, that was an out-of-touch thing to do. And, you know, also, don't worry, this is not the most out-of-touch thing a fashion line is going to do. Trust me. And in 2012, Carly Kloss, a runway model, apologized after being called out for appropriating Native American culture by wearing a headdress to a Victoria's Secret runway show, which is just, again, showing fashion lagging behind a bit that anyone thought that that was a good idea to make her do. Now, three years later, in 2015, a bunch of fucking snowflakes hold mass protests and demonstrations against Yale. And what did Yale do? Did they hire a model to wear Yale-themed Native American clothes? Did they post their dean in blackface? Nope. It was a free speech demonstration put on because Yale was hosting Halloween parties. They asked everyone to cool it and not appropriate other people's cultures for a costume. Which I would hope Yale students would be smart enough to understand why, but apparently not. I guess I should have gone to Yale, would have been valedictorian. But, the next year in 2016, the fashion industry and much of the writing world finally caught up to modern culture and realized, oh shit, white people will like us again if we claim that native people are cool with this. So a lot of these brands begin to show their hand and actually credit people they steal from. Which is... ironic. Considering the thing that I've now hinted at for the second time. And it's time for the most out-of-touch fashion thing I have ever seen. In 2019, Gucci released a new jumper and mask. An all-black jumper with attached half-face mask. With a large open hole for the mouth, 
trimmed in red. Which, if you've seen blackface, is ridiculously familiar. Uh, look up Gucci blackface jumper. Yeah. What in the motherfuck is that? And look, so far I've been very forgiving with people appropriating because they usually don't mean it. But what other fucking way is there to take this? Clearly there were literally only white people in that boardroom and none of them had passed a history class in their fucking lives. Seriously looks like something the pick-me girl that follows alt-writers around hoping for some cast-off wiener would wear. Holy shit. And not related, but making the last thing even more painfully ironic in the worst ways, is that in 2020, amid the rise of ACAB, even more racial injustice, and a growing movement of companies reaping free advertising from pissing off right-wingers, a lot of brands cast off their appropriate elements and began to support racial justice movements. Which, as per calculated, created a massive backlash and a counter-backlash that netted them more money than any of us will ever see in our lives. And following in 2021, not just brands, but individual people are turning the corner, with Iggy Azalea quitting rap after accusations of appropriating black culture and darkening her skin, and Sarah Osborne of the talk being ousted for racially insensitive mark remarks. And even brands like Dr. Seuss began to recognize its history of racism and lack of inclusivity, and as you might be aware, made moves to rectify that. And so that leads us to the modern day, which is probably also going to be a really quick section. So let's get to it. So like we left off at the end of the history segment, having inclusivity in your work and trying to avoid appropriation has become the new hotness. And everyone seems to love it. People on the left side of the political compass love it because it's inclusive and human justice and also fits the aesthetic liberalism the good old US of A is known for. A lot of minority people like it because they're beginning to feel included in shit for the first time without really much pandering. And companies like it because they love money and the only thing they have to do to get it is pay lip service to a cause they don't give a fuck about, they'll do it. And in fiction, this process has been happening for quite a while in a lot of genres, and this continues to the modern day. And while it's mostly for the same reasons, it's also because much of nerd culture for a while has been both forcefully and passively attracting more and more minority voices who then influence the stuff that they do. And the cool thing about these hobbies is that because most of them just need a couple of equally nerdy friends or just a writing desk, you don't have to be in upper echelons to start making an impact. In addition, creators of fiction are pushing pretty hard to make innovations. The new settings, influences, and cultural things are gobbled up like I gobble genitals. In other words, so quickly and vigorously, it's problematic. But of course, back in the real world, a lot of people are, let's say, skeptical of these changes. And now this is for two reasons. Either they're an asshole, or they don't get it. In the first place, they don't want people to feel included, because by and large, these are the people that don't believe whatever identity they have doesn't exist, or doesn't deserve to be given rights. Unfortunately, this is a whole lot more common than the alternative. In the other case, it's someone who is either lied to, the inclusivity is one of those out-of-touch collegiate snowflake hot takes, 
or they've never heard it before, and how is it explained makes it sound dumb. And on the nerd side of this, while those are common beliefs too, we have another group that really hates these ideas. Old Bloods. And not like my form of old blood, where I've been a nerd for almost two decades, but the ones who are nerds in the fucking 80s and 90s. And this isn't because they're racist, dumb, or anti-woke. Instead, it's because this breed of old bloods had to endure a ton of bullying for their nerddom, and so they refused to give it up. But not like nerddom in general, their specific brand of it. Meaning that anything that says that their nerddom is bad doesn't have the response of, Oh yeah, that's reasonable, that makes sense, yeah, I'll change. And instead is, fuck you, Brad, I'm not a pussy. And I think after really talking about both sides of this, you probably know which side of this I'm on. But also I hope that the other side makes some sense, at least the sensible ones, like people who are dumb or old blood nerds. But anyways, let's get to why any of this matters. Alright, so let's talk about why you should even try to write inclusively, and why it matters to not be an appropriating scumlord. At least more than I already have been. So, beginning with writing inclusively. The biggest reason why it matters is because it shows respect for other people in a way that isn't lip service. Because it shows you're putting your money where your mouth is, and are actually trying to include people. And by showing respect to others and to other cultures, you'll be subtly telling your audience to do the same. On top of this, by not including inclusive language, you're subconsciously telling people who the story is for and telling everyone else they aren't invited. And if you don't believe me, ask literally anyone who isn't a straight white man in the West, and they'll be able to tell you the hints and warning signs that story doesn't want them around. And to the STEM brains and Ben Shapiro's out there, this also affects your income. Because if you show respect to a particular culture, class of people, or religion, then you're inviting that group in. Meaning that your work can reach a wider audience, and they'll be a lot more loyal because holy shit does it feel good to have some respect all over you. Now, the other reasons why this matters is a lot grander. Firstly, if you begin to write inclusively, then you'll be in some way expanding your audience's worldview. Because oftentimes the thing stopping most people from being more inclusive in their daily lives is fear of the other. But if in your erotic sci-fi space opera that is surprisingly emotional and filled with gut punches, you have a pair of characters that are good queer representation, that have a relationship filled with a lot of love and that sweet, sweet vanilla fucking, a lot of people that otherwise would be terrified of gay people begin to get more comfortable. Especially if these characters are well-written and generally neutral or positive. Of course, with that example specifically, don't let them die, because then your audience might start crying every time they see two gay people in love, and they'll make a scene in public by dramatically falling to their knees and cursing your name. Secondly, and related to this, you can, in a larger scale, change the world. Because both by showing your majority audience minority people in positive light, you can change their outlook for the better, but also because if you're inclusive, all those people you're writing about may very well also come and camp out, creating a community where these groups can interact. And, you know, probably fuck each other too, but that's none of your business. 
But by doing that, you create a ripple effect as the majority of people realize there's basically no difference between them and the oh-so-scary other besides their color, what genitals they like the taste of, or which sky daddy they think judges them for the genitals they like. And the minority people have somewhere safe to go where they know the writing or storytelling will support them and the community is open to them. And lastly, you could very well change the writing genre and language. Because a lot of this funny little thing we call writing is very old and from the times where people were more racist and generally just pretty bad. Meaning that by using more inclusive language, you're lessening the impact of these outdated terms. And I know compared to the other points, this seems really insignificant, but I have a fucking English degree, damn it, it's important to me. Do you know how many times I've read something and did a reflective yikes because he uses terminology that's only used nowadays by real assholes? Alright, and why does avoiding appropriative writing matter? Well, because it directly contributes to cultural appropriation, which is, hey, pretty bad. And this two-thirds of a devil's threesome, too, has a variety of reasons to watch out for it. And this time, I'm starting minor and working my way upwards. Beginning first with making it harder to find sourcing for real historical and modern cultural practices. Shut the fuck up, phone. I mean, fellas, when was the last time you were trying to find information about Norse Vikings and realized far too late that you've been looking at the Assassin's Creed wiki or someone's alright fan blog for the fantasy world? But this is actually pretty serious in some cases, as you can end up accidentally contributing to the erasure or muddling of a culture by accident. A much more serious problem is the possibility of entirely minimizing very important cultural practices to the point of losing its sacred status. I mean, think about it. While the bindi is still very well known as a Buddhist symbol, think about how often people use the idea of karma, which is a religious concept or like the proliferation of homeopathy using religious and spiritual practices like Reiki as medicine, which not only damages its spiritual value, but also gets these stem-pilled type A doctors and scientists and writers calling it cringe. So by appropriating something deeply sacred or tied to a culture and just slapping onto whatever, you make it a meaningless symbol or something even worse, a symbol of that entire culture, robbing the entire culture of really cool and really important nuance. And the last and most important, you can tell because I made a new paragraph in my script, is that a trait can be appropriated by a majority to suppress a minority. And I know what you're saying. William, what drugs are you on and can I have them? That sounds fucking stupid. And no, you can't have any of my weed gummies, they cost me $18. And while sure, at first glance, it might not sound like it makes sense, let me give you an example. Cornrows and afros. Now, these hairstyles are very important to African American culture because these practices come from ancestral African culture, and when slaves were taken to the U.S., attempts were made to remove it. Which luckily didn't work, and nowadays, cornrows, afros, dreads, and other forms of braiding is seen as a very important cultural symbol. But something that happened a lot and continues to happen is that African Americans are told by things like mainstream fashion, art, and literature that's unsightly and ugly on them while simultaneously calling it beautiful on white women, which is appropriating the culture while trying to delegitimize black culture. 
And basically it's a switcheroo where the dominant culture wants an oppressed culture to feel bad about themselves, so they steal their thing and tell them they do it better. Which is untrue, by the way, and obviously. I White people look like white trash with cornrows and look like unwashed hippies with dreads. And I don't think these fashion industry people have ever seen a white woman smoking meth out of a Pepsi can with a butane torch. But the point being is that you can help curb these things by doing your part as a writer and not being a culturally appropriate piece of shit and fight your desire to just haphazardly slap things you think are cool into your story. Place them there gently, like you're trying to not wake up your girlfriend to get to the bathroom, also holding back the forces of hell from coming out of your asshole. So, with that, let's talk about it. Alright, as I said less than a minute ago, we're going to begin by talking about how to avoid cultural appropriation in your writing. For this one, I lean pretty heavily on the proof article about the topic, as well as some of my own experience from some past episodes. So the first step is to ask yourself if you're really the right person to tell the story or share this art. For example, are you about to tell the story of an Asian woman experiencing all of the terrible shit Asian women in particular face, also being a white man that has only ever seen someone Asian in those fucking Japanese cartoons me and your father keep telling you to stop watching? Then you probably aren't the person to do it. Now, if you don't just so happen to fall within my main demographic, and that doesn't apply to you, ask yourself if you can write the story both authentically and respectfully. I mean, really ask yourself. Shove that writer's ego we all have aside for a second and stare yourself directly in the fucking eyeballs and ask if you're capable of doing that. And regardless of the answer, also check to make sure that a similar story hasn't already been told by someone in the culture. And I don't mean like, Ah, well you see, it's different, because the woman I'm writing about is named Ayaka, and they named their character Naomi, so it's completely different. I mean, like, thematically and purpose-wise. If the answer is yes, or it's mostly already covered, then you have two options. If it's different enough to still be pretty fucking similar, give them the idea or ask for permission to tell the story. Or if it's basically the same, move on to something else and promo their story because they'll tell a more authentic story than you can anyways. Secondly, be aware of stereotypes and try to avoid them. You're going to need well-rounded and interesting characters and cultures to avoid appropriation. Like if you decide that your Japan insert in your fantasy world is <laughs> samurai are pretty cool, and you make them brutal super soldiers with an honor complex, that's a stereotype and also appropriative. But if you decide that your Japan insert is going to be a complex social commentary on the modern state of Japan set in a fantasy world, that isn't appropriative, assuming you know what the fuck you're talking about. Which leads us to the third step. Do your motherfucking research, you absolute sloth goblin. Learn about the culture, preferably from the culture or from an actual educated person on the topic. Or even better, get first-hand knowledge and actually, you know touch grass, and talk to people who live in it. This makes what you write naturally more authentic and also helps you to handle it a lot more sensitively, which helps you to curb being accidentally an appropriating, colonizing, Victorian British cockbagger. You know, like if you're writing a book taking place in the Pacific Northwest and you aren't from around here, you should probably look at our culture 
and also come visit. Also, you'll understand why we're so fucking weird if you come to visit, I promise you. It rains a lot here, and in a worldwide culture that hates the rain, there's nothing to do during the year but sex work, weed, coffee, beer, and serial kill. Oh, or start a militia. That's also an option. Fourth, hire sensitivity writer. For fuck's sake, run whatever you write past someone who's trained and experienced in finding some fucked shit. Otherwise, you're going to end up like the Gucci blackface jumper, you fuck. Sensitivity writers literally have made a career about being in tune with what is offensive, and it also helps if you pick a sensitivity writer that has a background in the culture you're writing about. Like, again, for a Pacific Northwest sensitivity writer, having a character in your store that doesn't drink something either very hot and addictive or very cold and addictive in the morning is going to set off some red flags for them. And they're absolutely going to tell you to get rid of the part where your character puts on a winter coat because it's raining. Be true to the Pacific Northwest. They're going to put on a flannel to keep their shoulders dry and be thankful for it. Alright, next, acknowledge your influences and fully admit when you take something from a real-world culture. Don't try to be sly and imply that you're kinda maybe took some influences here and there, but that you made it up. You aren't fooling me. Those guys with the axes, beards, round shields, and wolves are fucking Vikings. But here's the deal. A lot of us writers think this is a weakness. Which is bullshit. I, for one, think it's time to reclaim this and begin admitting that we're all just trading butt juices in this big old hot tub we call Western literature. Because there's some real ego-stroking benefits here. In addition to getting your praise king quota for the day for being a good boy and not appropriating someone's culture, you're also showing off how smart and worldly you are. Think about it. If someone asks, hey, what's up with this symbol on this dude's belt? What's more impressive? Saying, thanks, I made it up. Or well, did you know that that's actually a very obscure, important ancient Chinese symbol of protection that was later appropriate for use by the military? See, you're showing off not only something cool about the culture, but you're also showing off that you have more time to waste on learning obscure trivia than anyone else. The only true unifying feature of every nerd to have ever existed. And finally, avoid using monolithic language or things that imply negative stereotypes. Like if you're talking about crime and then very pointedly mention black people, most people will reasonably think you're being a fucking racist. And I know it's an extreme example, but that's just to get the point across. Now, this isn't to say that you have to be colorblind or pretend like there isn't real-world shit happening. But like the example above, instead of just passingly mentioning it like an asshole, you can actually you know, do something with that. Rather than just vaguely associating a word with an entire group, talk about the fear of people in that group. As an example. But, you know, for like a, a less spicy example of that, instead of saying the word neckbeard and then bringing up nerds that are big boys and making the implied connection we didn't mean to, you can instead focus it on a general fear in that group of being associated with neckbeards. Or how that group works out way too much or is obsessed with feminism because they want to do everything they can to be distanced from the black-pilled, misogynistic, neckbeardians that they resemble. Alright, so then how do you write inclusively? Well, let's go through the article, how and why, 
to write inclusive fiction by Kristen Kiefer. Where, once again, someone will make very good points and I'll fuck it all up by forcing as many dick jokes per word as I can. So, first, don't write inclusively to be trendy or hop onto the wokeism, liberal bullshit hype train, expecting it to fall off in a few years or because it's the new hotness. Make sure that you're doing it because you give a shit. And if you don't, I mean, one, I'm surprised you've listened this far, and also, don't even bother trying. Everyone will see through it, and also, morally speaking, that's pretty fucked up. Second, like what we said for the last one, expand your worldview. While this is done in the same way as getting less appropriative, the focus here isn't on learning more cool shit to throw into your story. Rather, you should be trying to understand the culture. Don't ask, hey, what cool shit can I include in the story to make people think I know about Native American culture? Instead, ask what life is like and about some general ideas. And then experience it for yourself. And fucking go outside and talk to people. It also helps to read stories from these voices because then you get to learn new terminology to call white people, one of my favorite hobbies, and also can see what people from that culture talk about and tells each other. Third, be aware of stories from the community in question and respect them, especially personal stories, and don't try to create new versions of these. And now they've been dubbed own voice stories by author Corinne Duvis. Duvis. God, I'm bad at names. I'm sorry. And now, these are stories that a minority voice could do better, and often already has, and should be a no-go if you don't fit into that group. And again, like avoiding appropriation, shout them out when these creators make these stories. Alright, fourth, do your research. But this time on a more character basis. Instead of just shoving as many references to the culture as you can manage into a single character, Build a character and really examine how both that character would interact with and be treated by their own culture. Like if you're doing the classic Viking story of an entire culture of sea raiding pirates, and the main character is a wimpy little softy, then instead of making them a turbo Viking but weak, examine how Vikings would deal with stuff like injuries or deformities or someone being small and work from there. Or if you're going full contemporary, how does a shy, six foot four, muscled up woman that totally isn't wish fulfillment get treated in, say, American queer culture? I mean, even if obviously that answer is extremely well. Essentially, what you're doing is looking at this culture you know about and asking what your character's experience with it is. Fifth, avoid tokenism. Tokenism being when a character is the token X, or only one. This is especially prevalent when the token queer, or the token race, where there's a single representative that gets all the baggage of being that particular group. And because of that, they're usually very stereotypical and can't be a person, which is not writing diversity, it's begging for brownie points. Now this also goes to archetypes assigned to that race, particularly like the magical n-word, I'm not... I'm not going to say even, like, the 1950s version of that. That's... Ugh. And also, something like the cyber Asian, who is very good at computers, usually inexplicably. What I'm saying is, make good characters, not racist tropes. Six, avoid objectifying your minority characters or making them a plot device. 
like making your blind character have a super secret superpower they can't use unless someone else does a thing. Or a character with mobility issues being the reason the alien invasion stops because it turns out the aliens are afraid of wheelchairs. This isn't really inclusive because once again, you're not treating that character like a person. Also, don't be inclusive for plot reasons, like we need one person of every ethnicity to make this thing work, because that's also not really inclusive, it's more just turning everyone into a plot device. Alright, seventh, use a fucking sensitivity reader. And take their advice and fix anything that's fucked up because they know better. Because they do know better. A lot better. You're not an infallible classic author because that never existed. Even classical authors could have used a sensitivity reader. Really could have used one. Also, don't just use one, pay one. You know, like buying your porn, it's a lot more ethical to make sure the money is getting to the person servicing you. And finally for this list, admit your mistakes and don't be afraid to correct them. No unreasonable is judging you for a genuine, minor mistake, and the only major mistakes they'll judge you for are the ones where you really should have known better, like the Gucci blackface jumper, or Congress people dressing like Native Americans for Halloween. And these mistakes should be easy to correct. If someone says, hey, isn't that from X culture? Don't get bitchy about it, and instead say, oh, yeah, it is. Or if someone says, hey, it's offensive to include that thing in that way, apologize, remove it or correct it, and learn from it. Growth is natural, and making mistakes is human. Just make sure you actually address them instead of trying to explain why exactly the badly executed Arabic stand-in is totally cool and not racist. Now, this very last thing isn't specific to any article and seems fairly universal in the research I did. The most important thing to do when writing inclusively is to omit unnecessary details like race, nationality, and even indicators like eye and hair color unless absolutely necessary. And absolutely necessary wouldn't mean, but I pictured Idris Elba playing this character. It's also unnecessary for background characters. What would be important is for things like a character being incredibly nervous about being tracked by the government, specifically because they grew up as a minority that's heavily persecuted and monitored by the government. Now, the other part is that things like syntax and turns of phrase are also very telling. You say a character goes pale with fear, red with rage, or green with sickness, then you're implying they have light enough skin to tell the difference of blood flow underneath the skin. And even having one ethnicity capitalized and another lowercase can also have implications you aren't intending. But, all of that said, at the end of the day, just remember to be humble, accept your mistakes, and actually fucking try. Anyways, onto the soapbox. Well, how do I feel about inclusivity now that I've done a whole episode on it? I'm pretty happy to have learned about it, actually. Because I have a ton of fiction writing I do off and on that I'd really hate to accidentally offend someone with. If I'm going to offend someone, it's going to be intentional and it's going to be someone that deserves it. I'm also really glad how much my research stressed the importance that no one is going to be perfectly inclusive at all times, and that's more important to recognize so when you've really sucked shit at it and improved. 
that's something I don't see with a lot of other topics on this side of the political spectrum. And speaking of the political spectrum, I also didn't expect inclusivity to have benefits for basically everyone. Because while sure, there's the lefty benefit of everyone feels involved and safe, there's also the righty benefit that, hey, you get more of that capitalist green. I mean, obviously that's simplifying, but, you know, still. And while it's not really surprising that these two things are interconnected, because I did the fucking episode on them at the same time, I was actually surprised that cultural appropriation had such, had both such a straightforward definition, but also such a confusing one. Because sure, it makes sense for the definition to be a kind of loose collection of ideas and come down to, wow, just going to steal that? But at the same time, I didn't expect it to have such a simple meaning as just taking something from someone else. And obviously, as an artist with integrity and just enough honesty to tell you the truth, I feel conflicted about it. Because obviously it's negative, but I have to be honest, a lot of the time while thinking about this topic, researching it, writing the script, and now recording, I've had the thought sneak into the back of my head of, what are you appropriating, fat boy? Whose story are you stealing? And that's because there's a ton of ancient, pre-modern, and contemporary cultures that I think are cool that I draw inspiration and imagery from. I especially like drawing from Chinese, Japanese, medieval Arabic, and Aztec imagery, and I try to do it very respectfully. And all that said, I'm making a dedication to not stop doing that. Taking inspiration, that is. But like other weeks, I'm going to take the advice I've found and, you know, actually put in the work to make something unique instead of just doing the artist thing and saying inspired when you mean stolen. Alright, let's end the show. All right, and there we have episode nine. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed, like it, leave a review, whatever else you can do on your platform of choice. Send me an email at waytatpods at gmail.com with questions, concerns, opinions, compliments, insults, um, actuallys, your own art influences that totally aren't just stolen, praise for being a big, brave boy in making this episode, and anything else you want to tell me. Also, follow me on Twitter at waytat underscore pods. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat, where I talk about things that happen in the U.S. that are definitely more soul-crushing than this episode was. Alright, have a good night, have fun, keep writing, and remember, tip your goddamn sensitivity reader. This has been Why Are You Talking About This Nerd, and I've been your host, William. Good night.